Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 111 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. On today's episode, we have journalist and Military Times deputy editor Leo Shane III. Leo's been reporting on defense and veterans issues for 15 years and has seen many changes when it comes to veteran concerns. There has been more talk of late. There's been a lot more long-term looking, especially as we look at the footprint of VA, where are hospitals being built, what facilities are out there. The old model was you got a big metropolitan center, you got enough veterans there, boom, build a big VA hospital and we'll repair it and we'll keep it going. And now we've seen more clinics and some smaller scale footprints that allow for more flexibility, may allow for expansion or contraction. Even in the Mission Act, part of this is setting up a network. Part of this is setting up a, a better way of connecting the VA healthcare system to the private healthcare system and, uh, and creating a safety net for veterans that, that works into the future. Even if the number of veterans starts to dwindle, you've got a, a healthy healthcare system that can at least absorb them. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Um, I've got an interesting guest today. Uh, I always say that I, I am excited to talk to many of our guests, but uh, especially today. Uh, Leo Shane is a reporter. Uh, he covers Congress Veterans Affairs in the White House for the Military Times. If if you're actually, uh, in, in my point of view, if you think of, you know, who is one of the um, media experts on military and veterans issues, um, Leo is definitely one of the first ones that come to mind. Um, so he's been in uh, the D.C. area. We were actually just talking about that since 2004. And uh, and I'm really excited to have him on the show. Leo, welcome. Uh, thanks for the invite. You're putting a lot of pressure on me here, though. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm, uh, <laughs> I feel like I got to be extra smart now when I answer questions. It's a lot. That's a lot for me. You've been uh, you've been up in front of panels on the hill and stuff like that. So so this is going to be nothing close to that. 
before we get into what uh, you know, some of the work that you're doing or covering uh, now, I'd like to give you an opportunity uh, to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and sort of how you got into the military and veteran space. Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting. I uh, I started covering military and veterans issues back in 2004. Before then, had just covered a lot of uh, state uh, legislatures, a lot of politics stuff. But I don't have any any real military background. My father-in-law served in the Navy. My grandfather served in World War II. But uh, I had never really looked at military and veterans issues as something I was going to focus on. Um, and when I moved to D.C., started covering some defense issues. Really found the veterans community to be uh, incredibly welcoming. Uh, you know, throughout my career, I've, I've gotten to play the, <clears throat> the guy who doesn't really know what he's talking about and has to ask every military question, has to be taught along the way. Uh, and the veterans community has been, has embraced me, has been really great explaining, uh, large issues, explaining small issues, explaining all sorts of angles that I think a lot of, a lot of civilians don't, don't get to hear about and don't really fully appreciate. So, so for the last uh, 14 or 15 years here, I've been covering, uh, as I said, a lot of a lot of military issues and then slowly shifted to defense issues as the as the folks from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars came back from overseas, um, you know, got into got into these mental health issues, got into these budget issues. Uh, it's really just been been a great pleasure for me to be able to tell stories that I think a lot of the country doesn't get to see most of the time. Yeah, that idea of stories, you know, I as a mental health professional, I recognize, uh, and even my, me, myself, veterans want people to understand what we went through. We want those who didn't serve, we want to be able to tell our stories. And at the same time, we don't know how to do it. And, and maybe you can't really drag it out of us. And so having that conduit to be able to, number one, somebody who has the natural curiosity that, that maybe a reporter has, but also, you know, treats the stories fairly and, and, and reports them accurately. Um, I can imagine that's been a huge benefit to not just you, but also the veterans that you talk to. Yeah, you know, it's, you bring up bring up a good point there. I've been lucky to work for two organizations, Stars and Stripes and Military Times, that both have very good reputations within the community. So I, I've never, I've had, I've had fellow reporters say, "Oh, how'd you, how could you ever get a veteran to talk about, you know, depression or or suicidal thoughts or their their TBI or PTSD, all these personal issues?" And I tell them, "Look, you know, I've." It's, it's actually the opposite. I've got plenty of folks who, who are happy to chat about it. It's how do I fit all these stories in? Um, I, found, I found a lot of veterans to be very, very forthcoming, very willing to share uh, their experiences because they, at least from my perspective, they know that, that talking about these things can help. They know that, that sharing those stories, getting them out wider can help other veterans, can help the, the broader American community understand what's going on. So, uh, But I do, I do wonder... You know how much of that is is piggybacking off of the the loyalty the community has had to those two publications. Stars and Stripes was was a great experience for me for nine years, and I've been over here at Military Times for the last uh, five years doing the same great work for for another company that really really wants to be part of the community, really cares about those uh, you know our, our our service members and our veterans. Now, that's an excellent point. Of course, um, you know, my one Iraq and two Afghanistans and I did two tours in Germany. So six years. So a large number or a large amount of my career was spent overseas in which Stars and Stripes was our only, um, you know, a newspaper, essentially. Right. You know, and so, uh, uh, yeah, I've, I got a great quick story when I was in Afghanistan. I was there with some CNN guys and some L.A. Times guys and we're going out on a deployment and the the. 
the folks who were taking us out came over to introduce themselves and shook the hands and they sort of nodded their heads at the LA Times guys, nodded their heads at the, the CNN guys and Stars and Stripes. They said, oh, Stars and Stripes, oh, I read that every day. Can you get my picture on the front page? And they start doing it. And the, the CNN guy was not happy. The CNN guy was like, you're you're just, you know, you paid them off. You did something. I told you, no, man, this is this is the hometown paper out here. You guys are secondary. Exactly. Welcome to the uh, welcome to the the where the big fish and and really that was a big thing. I I think I was um I was in Afghanistan when uh, the Affordable Care Act um uh, debate was going on. I don't remember any of it uh, because we yeah. had we had something we had more stuff going on and we had much more important things to consider. You know, so especially now as these these conversations are like, you know, I, I don't have any recollection of what that was. Um, because we were focusing on obviously the mission that we were doing and things like that. And so, yeah, it, having that kind of ability to, um, again, you said to be the hometown paper and sort of reach back. Um, but then you've shifted from reporting in, in, in absolutely we're still doing things in Afghanistan. There's troops still in Iraq and of course Syria. Uh, but you said that you've shifted from, uh, reporting on active military op- uh, operations in the Department of Defense. Uh, to doing a lot more veterans issues. When you started in 2004, um, there weren't a lot of OIF and OEF veterans because it had just started, right? Yeah, um, and, and what we've what we've learned over the years is not that there weren't a lot of issues, but that they weren't weren't focused on, right? I mean, we didn't have the OIF and OEF guys back, but we did have plenty of Vietnam vets who had undiagnosed PTSD, who had significant problems with their benefits, who had all sorts of headaches with the VA. That didn't really get addressed until that wave of Iraq and Afghanistan vets came back. So, so you're right. As as I said, um, you know, it, back when I started in, in the 0405 uh, area, it was almost exclusively looking at the military, looking at personnel policy, pay raises, and housing, and all that stuff. And over the years, as more veteran stories started to creep in, my editor started to poke me for more, and then I started to push for even more. I mean, I feel. You know, for uh, there's a there's a very big uh, reporting contingent down at the Pentagon. There's a big defense reporting corps that does does a really solid job. Uh, maybe not as much as we always want, but is paying attention to not just the the Pentagon apparatus, but what folks are doing overseas and all of that. But but the veterans reporting corps is still pretty small in the country. There's not a, there's only about five or six of us that mm-hmm. really are covering VA issues on a full time basis, despite the fact that. The budget has quadrupled over the last 15 years, despite the fact that, you know, there are veterans in every community across the country. Uh, that's always the thing that kills me. I understand why newspapers have education reporters. I understand why they have, uh, you know, some environmental reporters. These are important issues. These are things that affect every community. But uh, but just about every community in the country has veterans, too, and understanding what they what they bring, what they're dealing with, what their challenges are is an important part of understanding your community. So. So I'm happy. I'm always happy to be able to tell those stories and, and give a little bit more insight into what it means to uh, to have served, uh, however it was, and what it means to still be uh, a person who's who's got that mindset. You know, you bring up a great point, uh, especially about you know maybe you know military and veterans issues is an additional um, you know uh, beat that that someone tacks on to maybe a, a local reporter or something like that. Uh, and and I hear from a lot of veterans that they're concerned about how. Um, veterans are portrayed in the media, but especially how how um, mental health is portrayed in the media, right? And, and again, as we'd mentioned before, yeah. um, before we started talking, that not that you're talking about talking for all journalists, um, but this concern of you know 
um, over pathologizing PTSD, the idea that all veterans have PTSD. Um, from a reporter's perspective, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I'm, you know, I'm pretty smart. I think I can speak on behalf of all journalists. I think that's fine. They'll all agree with me. Now, look, yeah, no, it's this. This is a constant problem, and it's something that that uh, you know I see veterans cringe about all the time, and frankly, I cringe too whenever there is a a veteran who's involved in in some sort of violent act, a shooting, whatnot. Um, that becomes the default. Oh well, well, that's why. And uh, you know, I've. I've met plenty of plenty of veterans. I've talked to plenty of folks, and there's nothing that makes me believe that, that veterans are are more likely to hurt other people or to be more jerks than than anyone else in the country here. Um, you know, it's 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 a lack of familiarity. There's a lot of folks who for whom PTSD is still a a scary, far away, foreign concept. And uh, one of the things I run into all the time when I'm talking to folks is is people think PTSD is a is exclusively a war injury. People don't mm-hmm. think of PTSD as something that happens after a car accident or after a, uh, after a mugging or after some sort of traumatic event that happens in your life. People seem to always associate it with being in the war and, and uh, you know, terrible combat injuries and you come back broken, you come back a whole different uh, person. So, so that, that permeates and there are I've seen plenty of pushback um, from from news organizations now. I think that was the easy excuse maybe six or seven years ago, and now people are getting smarter. When you do see some of those stories and some of that that gut reaction, oh, this bad thing happened because this is a veteran and veterans are all facing problems and are all broken, uh, you immediately see five or six stories from other places that, uh, that, that push back on that. I think one of the, one of the reasons why is uh, a lot of papers like The Post and The Wall Street Journal and New York Times, I see them some of these these bigger news organizations, I see a lot of veterans starting to work there. Uh, mm-hmm. A handful of, of journalists, you know, we've got a, a ton in our shop uh, who are doing great work. But uh, you know, Alex Horton over at the Post, Ben Kessling over at the Wall Street Journal, these are these are folks who um, have served, who know what it is, and are, are sensitive when they see that, and they can sort of walk around the newsroom when something like this is happening and say, "Hey, guys, like, yeah, this person was a veteran. Here's what they're. I'll help you get their their record when they served." Uh, so we've got that information, but let's be careful not to say that the reason this person had problems is because they had a combat tour in Iraq, because we don't know. We don't know if they had an injury. We don't know if they saw anything traumatic. Uh, it could just be a jerk. could just be could be something completely different. could be something that happened to them after the service. Let's not jump to crazy conclusions and just say, oh, war vet, yep, that's, that's the reason this person uh, is having trouble. You know, that's great to hear, you know, a level of, of I mean, a journalistic integrity, right? To, to, to know that there is that, that maybe that question to ask. Yeah. Um, you know, well, and part of it, part of it is knowing that question to ask, right? I mean, if you don't, if you've never dealt with veterans, if you don't only, if you only know PTSD from afar, maybe you think that is a logical thing. Maybe you think that's a, a quick checkoff. I mean, we do that with, with all sorts of, of uh, you know, all sorts of things. You, you make assumptions based on what you know and what you don't know. Um, so if more people read about PTSD, if more people understood that it's not just something that the military deals with, but something we all deal with, uh, same with depression. I think there's, I think in general, a lot of us still have an idea. Uh, I, I, I should say a lot of the country still has an idea that you know, mental health issues mean you're unstable. It means at any moment you could you could snap and, and go out and hurt others and go crazy. Whereas, you know, there's not the evidence that necessarily depression or uh, or or other issues are going to to cause that. Um, so, 
you know, it's nobody, nobody says, oh, that, you know, that person broke their leg. That's why they went around and, and smashed up all those windows. But, uh, but we do seem to have that assumption for, for mental health issues. No, it's true. And of course, the, the veterans or some veterans, and, and I am not smart enough again to speak for all veterans. Um, but the, uh, but we play into that too. There are a number of veterans that, that sort of, um, you know, buy into that stereotype. Um, a, a quick story from my point is, uh, uh, last year, I had a local reporter here wanted to talk to me as both a veteran mental health professional about whether or not, you know, neighbors should stop doing fireworks around veterans, right? And is it going to trigger veterans and things like that? Um, we had a good 10, 15 minute conversation and I was feeling pretty good about it. Um, of course, and my point was we didn't cause the environment to adapt to us. We were in the military. We adapted to the environment. Treatment is available. You can overcome these kind of things. It's not, it's not necessary to make others stop doing what they're doing. Um, essentially, she chose about a, a you know, 15 second snippet of our conversation. And then she went to the local VFW and found a couple of veterans in the basement that said, oh, yes, absolutely. Every time a firework goes off, I hit the table and I can't stand it. And everybody should. I mean, and, and she or or her editors probably had a a an angle they wanted to portray um but the veteran some veterans will freely buy into that yeah and some you know it's it's it depends on what it is too i mean uh you know that sounds like a case where where she either didn't get it or was was misrepresenting but you know, sometimes because I, 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 the fireworks one's an interesting one because I see that I see the backlash on folks are saying you shouldn't adapt, but like if I knew my neighbor, my neighbor's a Navy vet. Um, if I knew that that fireworks upset him, I wouldn't want to set off fireworks in my backyard. Now I'm not saying that everyone shouldn't do that, and he's never asked for that sort of thing, but this is part of just just knowing the community and knowing who's there. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not advocating for that, but. If I knew there was some complicating factor with my neighbor, whether he's a vet or not, um, you know, I want to be a good neighbor. I want to treat him with respect. I want to understand that stuff. So so I think sometimes those stories are an attempt to do, oh, what can we do? What kind of outreach do you need to do when, in fact, the better solution is to to better understand? Like there, there may be a, a man or woman in your neighborhood who's really sent off by that, but, you know, a better a better treatment a better long-term uh help for them would just be to to be more neighborly to to be able to have them over for a you know for a picnic beforehand and say hey you know these guys are going to be setting up fireworks just a heads up over there but also like why don't you come over for a burger let's talk let's make this whole thing less mysterious and um i've never one of one of the things i tell people all the time is i've never really understood why why people uh, why why a lot of america has this sort of perception or fear of, of a vet who's going to go crazy. Uh, but then also uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of respect and, and deference to law enforcement who deal with a lot of the same issues, see a lot of the same things. I'm not saying they're exactly analogous, but I think, uh, I think a lot of Americans, if you said, um, you know, invite a combat vet over to your house or invite a police over to officer to your house, they wouldn't think twice about the police officer and they'd, they'd be panicked about is the combat vet going to be okay. You know, that's, that's absolutely true. And this is a paradox that, that we as veterans face is that, um, people respect veterans from afar, right? You know, we go to the movie and we watch Chris Kyle and we, we, you know, we honor, you know, yeah. the, the Medal of Honor series on Netflix is a, a, a great way to look at, you know, uh, heroism in the past. And so it's, you know, we, we appreciate veterans from afar, but it's very different if they're sitting next to us on a plane or they're sitting next to us in a cubicle. 
Yeah, and I'll tell you, like, just just personally, one of the things that that I get stuck in is because of my job. I'm writing about veterans policy. I'm writing about you know things that are up there. So I love to I love to write about the individual person stories. But a lot of what I'm writing is all right. Here are problems with mental health policy. Here are here are shortcomings in the budget. Here are failures we've seen with the suicide hotline. And I I'm trying to be as as fair with all of that as I can, uh, highlighting the issue without trying to play into the, oh, see, there's so many mental health problems, uh, especially when you get into problems with the, with things like the suicide hotline. You know, we want to make sure that works better. That's the reason I'm writing the story is to shine light on where failings are and to make sure that those resources are available. But I also never want to scare away a veteran from calling that resource if they need it. Just because there are, are shortcomings with the system doesn't mean that the system is not still incredibly valuable. So it's a it's a complicated dance. I hope I, I come out on top more often than I don't with uh, with getting that that right. But um, you know, we just we want to you want to send that message of of uh, you know yes there are problems yes there are things with VA you want to fix yes there are shortcomings but. That doesn't mean that there's not help out there. That doesn't mean there's not uh, not important things for, for veterans to know. You know, I think that's very critical. And in, in just hearing that, the, the pivotal role that you play, one, in, in informing the community who hadn't served about veterans issues, um, but also then turning around, as I said, and as you said, on the national level, there's very few um, reporters that are specifically focusing on veterans issues and your name is well known. So veterans will listen to you uh, and they'll read you and they'll talk about and they'll share the, the stuff that you write. Um, and so then also turning around and, and explaining to veterans or, or, or helping veterans become more aware of, you know, what things are going on in the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, I think that's a, like you said, a complicated dance and maybe difficult to balance at times. Yeah, I mean, it is it is tough. We and especially with what we've seen over the last four or five years in VA. I mean, look, there's been there's been a leadership mess over there. Uh, there's been we've had two different secretaries forced to resign for uh, one for for almost purely political reasons, one for uh, for structural reasons within the VA. Um, we've had a lot of ups and downs with with how money's been spent, how money hasn't been spent, but. You know, while while I'm writing all of that, I, I do want to be conscious not to not to say that VA is a broken, messy system, because that's the narrative that gets out in the, mm -hmm. in the national media line. It's just, oh, VA, what are you going to do? It's never going to be fixed. Well, I, that's that's not true. We've seen uh, tons of resources. You know, the, the disability benefits backlog is a problem, but there are hundreds of thousands of veterans who are receiving critical payouts. Um Somebody should, you know, we, we, we're going to see this again in the next presidential election cycle because we saw it in the last one. There's going to be some candidates who come in and say we should get rid of VA and just hand checks to veterans. Well, that's, you know, at least from my perspective, that's a pretty, uh, pretty big disservice to what is being done in VA in terms of health care, in terms of mental health care, in terms of transition support programs, in terms of education benefits. There's a lot of of good news that goes on a VA, but, uh, but it's a, it's a massive bureaucracy and it's a massive bureaucracy that needs to be held accountable for when it has failings. So, so complicated dance, complicated dance, not just for me, but for lawmakers too. We, I do hear from them a lot saying, you know, I want to be able to, to really hold VA leadership to the wall and say, look, you've got to fix this without convincing veterans that it's a, it's a disaster of a system and without, without misleading the public into thinking that, Everything with VA is broken beyond repair, and it can't be. It's a system that can't be saved or improved. 
You know, and, and that is critical, this idea of, you know, how do we report accurately what's going on, but also not deter veterans from, from accessing the VA. Um, I yep. am a mental health counselor that's in the community. Um, I work very closely. I have a lot of colleagues that I respect immensely. I like to say that I, I enjoy working with the VA. I don't want to work for the VA because I, I firmly do believe that there needs to be providers in the community that have connection back to the VA that says, you know what, you know, this is an issue that can be managed in the VA. This is, this is something that can be done. Um, you know, the immense resources. I, I like to say that, uh, you know, I'm like a light infantry strike force. I can respond quickly. If a, if a veteran called today, I can get, I can see them tomorrow, you know, and, and so community providers who are culturally competent have the ability to be more flexible. Um, it just because we don't have the, the overwhelming, uh, crush. But also the, the VA is like a combined strike force that, you know, when they come in, they have a whole lot of resources available that I simply don't have. You know, I can't get someone into the Denver PTSD program from the VA as quickly as, as one of my VA colleagues can. And so I, I firmly do believe in um, cooperation, not competition, uh, collaborating, you know, a, a good community connection um, with the VA. But then, as you said, and you've seen, I, I, I'm certain that you've seen from 2004 um, all the way up to um, uh, up to now, a change in the VA. You mentioned, you know, the, the leadership challenges. I had the uh, the honor of of um, attending a, a conversation with Bob McDonald, um, and he said that when he was, you know, the CEO of Procter and Gamble, um, he was geared up for that in, you know, for like 15 years. Um, but if the VA were a Fortune 500 company, it'd be like Fortune 9, and yeah. it's had extreme CEO turnover, right? I mean, you wouldn't see this level of CEO turnover in a Fortune 9 company and have it be stable, right? And so this is one yeah. of the things that, that is the challenge. I'd be interested to hear what you've seen, the changes from 2004 to, to here we are almost you know, um, 15, 20 years later the changes that you've seen in the VA. Yeah. Well, but I mean, and, and Bob McDonald was a very interesting, uh, interesting person to take over that job because he did bring that, that fortune 500 CEO experience. And, uh, and he talked quite frequently about what, what worked, what didn't, what was different. Uh, you know, it's one of my, <laughs> I, I'm often, uh, sniping at folks who say, you know, uh, we need to run government like a business. It can be run more like a business, but, uh, but it's a pretty screwy business if you're if you're doing that. Most businesses don't have a a board with 535 people, uh, all of whom get to get to uh, go back to their their voters and uh, and pick on you and embarrass you if they don't like their, like what they're doing. And uh, and most uh, most companies don't have the the public restrictions with taxpayer money. It is taxpayer money, so it's something that that has to be uh, has to be accounted for. So back back in 2004 when I first started, um, you know, VA was it was really a sleepy backwater agency, uh, you know, very important to the veterans community, but uh, but did not did not register uh, on a lot of people's radars simply because it just wasn't that big. And as I mentioned before, the budget has almost quadrupled uh, over that time, which is a lot of money. We're looking at a two hundred billion dollar budget. Uh, it's larger than any of the individual armed services uh, over in the Pentagon. Um, this a lot of that is is benefits and healthcare and all those costs. Um, we've also seen more and more responsibilities heaped on VA, and while that's happening, um, VA has had to catch up. VA has had to move from uh, a you know some antiquated record systems and an old way of thinking to to much more reactive uh, uh, 
programs, a lot more transition programs, a lot more, uh, a lot more information about PTSD and benefiting not just the the younger generation of veterans, but the but the older ones. So, so that's meant that's meant a lot of new faces and a lot of a lot of turnover. Um, even absent the Trump administration, which is sort of known for its high turnover at this point, um, you know, we we've seen. Uh, what is it? Three to four different uh, permanent secretaries since uh, since five years ago and three other acting secretaries. Um, you know, it's tough. It's tough to get consistency when uh, when you've got different uh, different people up there bringing different priorities. Um, Eric Shinseki was the longest serving VA secretary uh, in the history since the, since become a cabinet level department back in the 80s. Um, and for a while it was, it was calm. And then, um, uh, because of, because of issues with, with the wait times, because of structural problems with how things were set up there, he was forced out. Um, it's, it's tough. What, what's lost in a lot of this is the fact that like any other major company, there's a lot of rank and file folks who are going to work, who care a lot about their jobs and mm-hmm. who aren't directly, you know, connected to that leadership in any way, aren't connected to the political drama uh, you know, folks at the VA hospitals, most of them just want to help veterans, just just want to get out there and uh, and touch the lives they can and, and provide the care they want and just want, uh, you know, want the, the folks up top not to be in constant turmoil. What has happened is over the years, VA, you know, I don't know that VA's reputation was ever great, but I think it's taken a real beating as politicians have looked at some of this, have have blasted certain leaders for decisions and have said, you know, look at all that turmoil, look at all the problems, look at the wait times, look at this. Now we've real, got a real public perception problem uh, that that VA is a is a is a broken system. Bob McDonald was the one who, when he came in, really really spent a year doing doing cheerleading. Um, I don't I don't want to diminish that in any way, but really saw part of his job being trying to fix that reputation, trying to get the public to understand the importance of VA. The the medical research has done in the past, the discoveries that have, have that it's made, and the amount of just the amount of care that it provides. Um, you know, we're now the the his his predecessors haven't spent as much time on that, and I wonder if if you go to <clears throat> just a, a supermarket anywhere in the country, if people say VA, oh, that's one of those those screwed up uh, government programs, it doesn't really work. Right. And, you know, and, and I, it is, uh, I think, a level of reputation management. And, and again, if, if it's not being done by uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs, you um, in the media, you know, maybe bring on some of that responsibility of, of saying, you know, hey, it's not all that bad and it's not all that good. Right. You know, let's let's talk about yeah. the fact that the emperor ain't got no clothes. Um, and at the same time, you you bring up an excellent point. The VA is the 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 primary training ground for just about every veteran uh, military psychologist that I know of. Right, spent time in the VA. They're they're a, a huge resource uh, for postdoctoral um, in and helping develop mental health professionals that are culturally competent. Um, you know, they're they're the largest training institution medically, even um, not just mental health wise, uh, and and just about every um, you know, uh, advance that we've understood has been involved in some way through, you know, the VA or VA research and even community research. They work closely with the VA. And so we, we have to have this, this, um, this agreement. Um, and then, like you said, maybe they're just this big target and an easy target to, to get people to rattle the torches and pitchforks. 
Well, look, it's it's a lot of taxpayer money, and that is something you you do have a different level of responsibility there. You are you are spending the public's money, and I you know I, I do think some of it is is sincere. I've talked to uh, I've talked to groups of of non veterans who have asked about what VA is like and have come in with some of these perceptions. And there is, there is, again, maybe it's that that you know respecting veterans from afar thing. But there is a a hope and an expectation by a lot of this country that when when service members return from war, whatever their needs are, are going to be handled very quickly. If you've got if you've got physical needs, if you've got mental needs, if you've got uh, benefits or education needs, veterans are going to be able to get into that, uh, get get access to that without much problem. When they see there are problems. It's a, it's a disappointment. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of folks in the country, especially when it comes to health care, mental health care, you know, expect veterans to be able to see a doctor within a couple of days to see them very quickly. Even though if 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 I go to get a, uh, you know, a medical appointment, it's going to take me three or four weeks for for my local doctor because they're they're backed up because a lot of the health care system is uh, is cumbersome at this point. So. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's tough, but one, one of the stats that I, I always try and keep in mind when I'm, when I'm writing about any of this stuff is, uh, that 20 suicides a day number for veterans. Um, I think a lot of people know that, but a lot of people don't know is that of those 20, uh, about six of those veterans have regular contact with the VA system and 14 do not. So that's pretty striking evidence right there. The VA is doing something right. That if you are a veteran who is, uh, who is connected to the VA system, you're more likely to to be getting some care that you need. Maybe it's not everything you need, but um, but you are uh, you are receiving a level of care that is that is helping you and is solving some of the problems out there. See, and and, and I I appreciate that you bring up that point. And this is something that even this last um, uh, VA suicide report they identify that within those numbers. Um, four of those 20 a day are actually active duty or actively drilling guards and reservists. Right, so. Yeah, although I did, so this is a little bit of a <laughs> this is a little bit of a side note, but there's some there's some changes they made to those numbers. There's some problems. I've been trying to poke them for months, trying to figure out exactly how they break that down because right. that those numbers don't add up to what some old numbers added up, and I don't know. They're they're look. It's not an easy thing to get a handle on how those stats work. They are they are very clearly trying to to get more transparency because if we if we don't understand what the numbers say um it's a whole different it's a whole different thing and i i still see a lot of folks citing the 22 suicides sure. a day number which um you know we've sort of we, we've gotten off that for the last few years but it shows how long it takes to, to educate the public so um so yeah so that, those active duty numbers they're playing a role in there and if if that's a role, some of that comes out. Um, I think they they mislabeled them at one point and then backed up. But it's it's tough. It's important to it's important to figure this out, and it's important to keep having that research. And um, you know, the the big debate right now is is this issue of of the Mission Act and how much care is going to go out. The president keeps talking about giving veterans more choice and giving letting veterans go into the private sector and get care. And uh, there's there's good with that. There's bad with that. There's a lot of a lot of issues. But it's a it's an issue where I think um, the president and some politicians have found a way to simplify it, make it sound good, but um, but the public needs to better understand that, look, just because we give veterans more options doesn't mean that everything gets solved, doesn't mean that we have, uh, as you said earlier, the culturally competent uh, health care providers who can who can help out veterans or who can, uh, can provide the care they, they need. 
No, you're you're absolutely right. And in in, um, in 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 the Mission Act, and my organization has been providing um, uh, mental health care in the community since middle of 2016 through the Choice Program. And and we, I feel as though we as mental health providers also need to be involved in that conversation uh, because I don't want a veteran to see somebody who doesn't understand the unique aspects of military service. Right? I, we want right. the veteran to get the best care that they can um, in in the the best time that they can. I I have a colleague who she moved here from Colorado Springs and now she's working with the reserve unit, I think in Ohio. Um, and, and she said that she's, <laughs> we're, we're spoiled here. I, I think as, as we had mentioned before we started talking is we have a large number of military and veteran populations in Colorado Springs and places like San Antonio. And so of course, you know, having more access to that culture, more familiarity with that culture, we would have a larger number of culturally competent in individuals in this population. But the RAND study that came out that, that looked at New York, for example, um, mm -hmm. you know, and especially outside the city, but just New York is not a place where a lot of veterans, it's, it's not an America smile, right? Coming down through the Midwest and the South yeah. and up the East Coast. And so if you have less veterans, then you're likely going to have less individuals who are culturally competent. I've had calls from people from, um, you know, Portland or, you know, uh, in, in places like that, they're just like, I just need to find a mental health professional who understands and who gets it. And so that is a, a delicate dance because veteran mental health isn't like, um, podiatry or orthopedics because a broken knee is a broken knee. Doesn't, you know, matter whether I got it broken, uh, jumping out of a, a helicopter or on the, the football field. Um, the, we do have to, we as mental health professionals, can and should get involved in the conversation to say, that's absolutely true. I don't want a veteran to see somebody that's not prepared for them. Yeah, no, and that's, look, that's, that's the key. It's going to be, going to be how, how is it implemented? Um, you know, in, in your area, it makes a lot of sense for VA to be reaching out and using those resources if they've got folks who, who know what they're, uh, who know what they're talking about, who know how to handle a veteran. Um, you know, if I, but if, if, I don't, I don't think it's just a matter of, um, you know, folks who know what they're talking about wanting to help those veterans. I think that, that a lot of doctors who don't know what to look for with the veterans population also don't want veterans. I mean, they don't, they don't want to be responsible for missing something critical. Um, you know, if somebody has a great tip on a, on an environmental story, I don't want them to call me. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what I'm looking for. I don't know how to write that story because I don't have the, the background. Uh, but if somebody's got a great tip on a veteran story, yeah, I want them to call me. So, so it's good, you know, what might be great for for one community isn't going to be the same. And I think that's where a lot of the fight's going to be. Is this a a one size fits all? Everybody can go into the community now and it's cured, or is it going to be a okay for some communities? This will be great. And now that we see what networks are out there, we don't need to worry about maybe surging mental health capacity in Colorado, but we sure need to worry about surging it in New York. So now let's look at VA's hiring practices and get more mental health professionals up there. Let's move them over here. Uh, a lot of questions about what hospitals need to be built, what facilities need to be built, where does that, that go in the future? So uh, so it'll be some, some interesting fights, and I know that there's a lot of this that comes down to to politics. A lot of it comes down to, uh, you know, questions of privatization and questions of of government responsibility and stuff, but there are also a lot of lawmakers who are who are trying to figure out how do we how do we put in statute ways to fix this without limiting what what's available. 
Yeah, and and I think also along with the you know the political realities and the goals, there's a, you mentioned it before a very personal need to say that we want to take care of our veterans, right? So this can be a very emotional issue, um, you know, on on a very personal level, um, as opposed to just you know, and of course you know being good stewards of the taxpayers' money. Um, and I think especially this privatization fight, there's a lot of emotion behind it as well as a lot of logic behind it. Yeah. No, I mean, you you asked before how things changed. I didn't. I obviously didn't cover the military in the, in the seventies uh, when when folks were returning from Vietnam. But we all know the stories of how how the public uh, blamed blamed the troops a lot for for that war. Um, in two thousand four, even you know we we'd had fighting in Afghanistan. The Iraq War was winding up. There's a lot of controversy over that war and the reasons behind it and the politics, but the public response was very evolved from what we saw in the seventies. You saw uh, a lot of support the troops don't support the war, uh, which is great, but that also leads to some lack of understanding. So I think that, I think that there's, I think there are a lot of folks who, at least in the general public who are looking at this and saying, again, I want to make sure that veterans get what they need. I just don't understand what that is. But if I get the impression that you're not supplying what they need, I'm going to be very angry with you. Right. You know, and, and I think that uh, even as you just said, you know, what we know or we believe, and, and, and it's accurate too, my father was a Vietnam veteran and I work with Vietnam veterans now, um, is what we understand. But but I get the sense that you're capturing, of course, you're reporting on what's going on now. Um, but the VA of today isn't the VA of 2014, and it's not the VA that is going to be here 15 years from now. It is, you know, we're, we're in the middle of trying to turn a battleship in the middle of the ocean. Um, but, but everything seems so critical right now. So imminent right now, um, because it is very current. Yeah. There are very big decisions happening now. And there are things there, there's always some things that are going to have long-term ramifications, but, uh, but look for, for all the controversy that, that president Trump courts, um, the, he's got he's got some very big uh, big VA achievements to to list here. Um, you know the the accountability bill that he's passed is is controversial, but is something that Republicans have been pushing for for a while. Uh, electronic medical health records have uh, potential if they can get this new system up and running. It's a ten year project, but uh, that has the potential to make uh, care across the VA systems and within the private sector much easier. You know, if, if you're a vet, if you're a doctor who doesn't know a ton about veterans, but, um, but you get a medical record that lists several things to look for now, now you've got a little bit more of a cheat sheet to work with. Um, you know, one of the things with private sector care that, that veterans groups always bring up, uh, less so than mental health is burn pits. If you, mm-hmm. if, uh, if you're a, a vet who goes in for care at a VA hospital for a broken leg, uh, and you also mention that you've been coughing a lot and you've been having some weird problems, somebody there is going to ask you about burn pits, going to ask you if you were exposed to burn pits over in Iraq and Afghanistan as we try and figure out what the long-term health consequences there. But if you go to get a broken leg repaired at a, at a, at a local hospital, and you mentioned those same things. They might not know to ask. They may not know to, to check on on that thing. So, uh, so if you've got if you've got a better electronic medical record system, maybe maybe some of that barrier gets uh, gets broken, and maybe these other pushes for more private care um, become more seamless as you as you move between a VA and a private care system uh, to get a more holistic network. And I think you know a lot of the country would be happy to hear, hey, there's. 
there's this whole different sort of sub network working through the country for veterans that it seems to be great. Boy, I wish I could, I could be part of that. Now I am a, a firm believer of, uh, you know, as veterans go, so goes the nation, right? And, and not to say that, you know, it, that take care of veterans and everything else would be great, but what works for veterans, and I've seen this, um, in, in my local community, if we can figure out how to solve veterans homelessness, then we can take those techniques and apply them to, uh, the larger, um, aspect of, of homelessness. And the same thing is, is what works in the advances in traumatic brain injury in the military have definitely helped what's going on in the NFL with CETE and vice versa, right? There's a lot of um, uh, crosstalk between uh, the, the neurologist in, um, uh, in, in the NFL and in the military. And so I, I, this goes back again to this idea of cooperation and collaboration and needing to make sure that we have the right things in place for veterans, uh, not just now, but, but going forward. I was talking to um, Dr. Ed Tick, who's a, a nationally recognized veteran mental health expert. He started seeing Vietnam veterans in the mid-70s, you know, 10 years after um, uh, their experiences in the late 60s. Um, and, and, I, and I'm seeing post-9-11 veterans 8 to 10 years after their experiences, and I'm thinking, man, this is great. But I'm also seeing Vietnam veterans for the first time 50 years later. And so with this extended war, we're going to be addressing the psychological impact of Iraq and Afghanistan for the next 50 years. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see. I think with what we know today, or at least maybe I'm, maybe I'm just being hopeful, but what we know today with the treatments we've done, um, with the focus on mental health, on TBI, on PTSD, uh, depression, you know, maybe we don't see the wave of folks like we did with Vietnam. You know, when the there's a, there's a fair amount of Vietnam vets who came back, sort of buried everything, threw themselves into work, then have now hit retirement age and are realizing they didn't deal with with these serious issues from 30 or 40 years ago. Um, maybe we, you know, maybe we have some of those, but not the same sort of wave. Maybe we Maybe this time we handle it right. Maybe this time we've got more information. Uh, but more likely, we learn more things over the years. And, you know, I, I mentioned burn pits before. We know of, of severe respiratory illnesses for folks who were directly exposed. But we're we going to find out in 10 years that folks who just passed through a base in Iraq while the burn pit was going also had some some lingering uh, issues. So we're going to find out that that some of the, the uh, TBI issues that were, were – we think we're dealing with well now, actually, you know, there's a, there's a much better way in, in 10 years to deal with this. And uh, we find a, a, a silver bullet to, to solve all those problems. So uh, it's, it's interesting. And that's, that's something that I know lawmakers give a lot of lip service to, but I don't know if they always think about the, the long tail of war and the long-term consequences. Um, people in this country want what ventures to be taken care of when they come back. And that doesn't matter if it's, two years after they come back or, or 70 years after they come back. You know, I think this is an especially uh, I'd like to hear your point of view on this um, as a legislative beat reporter um, is uh, it, a lot of it has to do with incremental incremental legislation. Let's deal with the problem now and, and less concern with the long term. Um, I, I recall um, in one of my uh, MBA classes, we took a look at Hurricane Katrina and, and we looked at all of the legislative decisions, both locally and, and federally, going back 80 years that, you know, we're going to put a levy here, we're not going to put it there, we're going to, you know, fund this project and not that project. And it was all incremental legislation that by itself looked like it was a good idea, but ultimately led to the failures of, of flooding New Orleans. 
Yeah, and look, there's always going to be some Monday morning quarterbacking there, right? Like you don't you don't get to see the whole picture until many years later. But I will tell you, there's there has been more talk uh, of late. There's been a lot more long term looking, especially as we look at the footprint of VA, where are hospitals being built, what facilities are out there. Um, you know, the old model was you got a big metropolitan center, you got enough uh, you got enough veterans there, boom, build a big VA hospital, and we'll repair it and we'll keep it going. And now we've seen. Uh, we've seen more uh, more clinics. We've seen more um, some smaller scale footprints that allow for more flexibility, may allow for expansion or contraction. Uh, and even in this, even in the Mission Act, there's there's uh, part of this is setting up a network. Part of this is setting up a a better way of connecting um, the the VA healthcare system to the private healthcare system and. Uh, and creating a safety net for veterans that, that works into the future. Even if the number of veterans starts to dwindle, you've got a, a healthy healthcare system that can at least absorb them. So uh, we'll see. The conversations happen. I, I do feel like um, the last several years, as we see, uh, frankly, the, the veterans population shifting uh, in, in where it's located and also decreasing. Uh, we're not expected to plateau for a few more years here. Um they're they're talking about it. We'll see if they're succeeding at getting it right when when the time comes. You know that is uh, that's some, those are some great points. Uh, I really appreciate you taking time out on a on a, a snow day in D.C. Um, uh, to to be able to have a conversation. I'd like to give you an opportunity, maybe some last thoughts that you'd like people to think about, maybe um, between the media and and mental health and the veteran community. Yeah, I, I, I guess the only thing I would leave with is I, I hope people do uh, do try and be a little more savvy with how they think about. I think your audience is a little different than uh, than the the general audience that I'm, I'm, I'm usually giving this pitch to. But uh, but I you know there's a there's a difference between giving up on a system and expecting more of a system. And I think VA for all of its faults, there are there are a lot of good things happening there. There's a lot of a lot of very important mental health care, a lot of very important health care and services. Uh, and I think, you know, veterans should demand more without giving up on the system. Um, I, I'm hearing from veterans all the time who do go get, uh, do go talk to a counselor, do go get PTSD help, uh, and are happy with the results they get after they get through scheduling issues or after they have other problems, after they have a long drive to get there. So, so there are sacrifices. Nothing's ever going to be perfect, but I think I think giving up on the system is is very different than expecting more. And uh, and I, I worry that too often veterans hear stories of problems with the system and say, "Oh well, forget that. I don't even want to try it." When uh, when the actual message should be, uh, you may need to get in there and see the problems and also be a little bit of an advocate, be able to get the care you need, and also say, "But you know, if you did." this, this, and this, it'd be a better system and, and tell the system that, tell people that. So, uh, you know, it's been, it's been interesting. Like I said, I think, I think a lot of the country wants a great, uh, healthcare system for, for veterans, whatever that means. Um, veterans have to play a role in helping define that. You know, that is uh, that's a great point. And, and I, I try to do the same thing when I see veterans, you know, and 
it, it, I did the same thing with my soldiers in the army. They go, oh, I hate the VA. Well, you can't yeah. get, you, you can't get the VA in the chair and say, why, I, why do I hate you? I mean, it's a bureaucracy. It's not an actual thing. Let's figure out what the obstacles are. Um, and, and I describe the VA as a diesel engine. It takes a little bit for it to get going, but once it gets going, it yeah. works really, really well. And look, uh, I hate, I hate the Department of Motor Vehicles, but I still go get my driver's license because I want to drive around. So, you know, sometimes you can, you can hate the bureaucracy, but still get what you need out of it. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So if uh, if people wanted to reach out to you, you're very um, active on Twitter and social media. How can people find you online? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Leo Shane. That's probably the best way to, to poke at me. Uh, you can also read all of our stuff at, at militarytimes.com. You'll, uh, if you find some of my stories, you'll always find my email at the bottom. Try and answer as many emails as I can. I'm getting more and more. Uh, and we also we also have a podcast. We have a political fallout shelter. A little bit less uh, less veterans news than uh, than you and I talked about here. A little bit more defense news. But uh, but I'm trying to force my co-host into talking more about the VA because that's where where my passion is. So that's interesting and and not a surprise to say that I've never heard about it. But uh, I'm definitely going to look it up because I'm always we uh, we're we're having some fights with our advertising people about uh, <laughs> about advertising that better. But uh, uh, but it's good stuff. Check that out. And then, yeah, Twitter is Twitter is where a lot of us live. A lot of us have that these conversations. And I know people have very strong opinions about social media right now. But I have found that uh, the the benefits of hearing from veterans on there and hearing about the community, the veterans community, uh, far outweigh some of the some of the jerks that that circle on there. I think I've I've met quite a few people and learned quite a bit just from from being on there and being able to listen and, and filter through some of that other stuff to get to what, what veterans are really talking about and really care about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, really, you're doing some great work and I really appreciate you coming on the show. No, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the invite. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. It was great to get a perspective on veterans' issues through the eyes of a journalist. I especially appreciate Leo's point of view on reporting on veteran mental health in the media. I agree. I'm increasingly seeing post-9-11 veterans in the major news organizations and hearing them express caution about painting all veterans with the crazy combat vet brush. He and I also talked about the Mission Act, also known as the Maintaining Internal Systems and Strengthening Integrated Outside Networks Act of 2018. Here's a description of the Mission Act from the VA website. This legislation will strengthen VA's ability to deliver health care by consolidating VA community care programs into a single program that's much easier to navigate, expanding eligibility for a program of comprehensive assistance for family caregivers, strengthening VA's ability to recruit and retain the best medical providers, and strengthening the VA's infrastructure. Like when the Choice Act was implemented in 2014, it remains to be seen how this will impact veterans. But as he and I both mentioned in the episode, there's a need for all mental health providers, both inside and outside the VA, to collaborate in order to get the best possible care for veterans. Lastly, a note. When Leo and I recorded this show, his podcast was called The Political Fallout Shelter, but has now been renamed The Defense Nerds Podcast. Leo and Defense News Capitol Hill Bureau Chief Joe Gould introduce listeners to the stories behind the latest military happenings on Capitol Hill. Each week, they'll bring an insider's perspective on what the biggest headlines are, why the public should care, and what's coming next. Make sure to check out the link to their show, which can be found in the show notes. 
Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to check out the show notes, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST111. Share the link to the show with somebody that you think might enjoy it. We're always looking for guests, either veterans or those who support them. You can drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com to recommend guests, or you can go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash guests to fill out a suggestion or request. Just a reminder that the guests and information in this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. If something you've heard makes you think that you should reach out and talk to somebody, then please do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Be on the lookout for another great episode, and until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.